Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Parkview. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, uh, we've been working through a series called Blueprint, which is, this, uh, we're in the study of Ephesians, which kind of talks about uh, faith and life and how those integrate together and gives us a roadmap for, for how we live. And so uh, we're going to be continuing that today. But before we go any further, I want to ask you a question to get started. Do you, in your sphere of influence, know anyone who you would categorize as a backseat driver? In case you need some help uh, with the definition of that term, let me, let me offer you one. A backseat driver is a phrase used to describe a non-driver who sits in a vehicle and offers unwanted commentary or criticism to the driver. So let me ask again, do you in your life know someone who's a backseat driver who fits this definition? And the bad news I have for you today is if you're sitting here and you're saying, Josh, I just can't think of anyone, well... You're probably the backseat driver, to be honest. <laughs> I know one in my life. Uh, I've married into a family. I, I get along really well with my, uh, my in-laws, my wife Paige's family. But uh, my, my brother-in-law, Dane, and I, see, there, there's a point of tension that him and I had to resolve early in our relationship. And it didn't take me too long in my relationship with Paige to find out that Dane is a recovering backseat driver. <laughs> And, and I found this out kind of slowly but surely. You see, it started out, um, I, was, I was driving one day in our hometown of Rockford, and Paige was in the passenger seat, and Dane was in the back, and he began giving me some, uh, how should we say it, preferred instructions for which way I should go to the destination. And I thought that was weird. Like, I lived in Rockford 28 years, so kind of know my way around, but whatever, just kind of put that aside. And then there was another day, Dane was, was here visiting us in, in DuPage, and he was in the back seat again of Paige and I, and we were going in a 40-mile-per-hour a road, and he began commenting, saying I was going too fast, which is crazy because I'm a pastor. I've never spent in my life. So uh, I thought that was a little weird. So I kind of ignored that. It's fine, whatever. And then one day, we were driving, uh, we were driving on the highway, actually here in the Chicagoland area, and Dane was again in the back seat, Paige was in the passenger, and it was raining hard, and so I had my, had my windshield wipers on. And Dane decided to offer some commentary and some criticism on the speed of my windshield wipers. <laughs> so at that point, we had to have a talk about what he's allowed to speak up into when I'm driving. And here's the deal. Listen, a backseat driver, if you know one, if you are one, they're, they're not all that bad. They, they know you're going to get them to the right place. They know, you're, they know that you know generally where you're going. They just want to make sure that you get there in the fastest way, the best route possible. And they're really confident that they know that route. So they're not all that bad. Because I asked myself the same question in my own life that maybe some of the backseat drivers you know may be asking, and it's, are we going the fastest route? Am I going the best route? Am I, is this decision the most optimal decision for my life? And you may have asked this in a lot of different ways. You may have asked this maybe in, did I choose the best school? Did I pick the best major for me? Did I apply to the right job? Is this the best career choice? Which city should I move my family to? Should I start having kids now or later? These are all questions that you may have asked, and they all are kind of addressing like the same idea, which is 
how do I know how to make the best possible decisions for my life? How do I know how to do that? Because I want to live the fullest life. I want to make the best possible decisions. And so today, as we dig into Ephesians 4, uh, Paul actually talks about this. And if we understand what he writes in Ephesians 4 to its fullest extent, he provides clarity, direction, and laser focus to our lives. He helps give us the optimal route for how to live and, and make decisions. It's an idea that will transform individuals and transform communities. And it's all wrapped around the idea of making Jesus' name big and glorious. So I want to welcome you this morning to open your Bibles or use your mobile devices to Ephesians 4, verse 1. And before we get into that, I just want you to keep in mind that as we read this, the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Ephesians, and he's writing to a young church in Ephesus, and he's just offering encouragement to them, and he's also kind of helping them figure out, okay, how do I, how do, I do this church thing? How do we live as Jesus followers? And in our Blueprint series, we've already gotten through chapters 1 through 3, and in those, Paul had reminded the church that God made himself known through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. And if I were to provide maybe a summary of those chapters, um, I think it would be that whatever walls existed between man and God, they're now demolished in the work of Jesus. And now when we commit our lives to, to Jesus, we can have a relationship with the living God and his spirit dwells in us. I would say that's kind of the big picture summary of, of where we are. But then chapter 4, verse 1, takes a sharp right turn in the text. See, it starts to move, and Paul starts to write, moving from this incomprehensible God who gives us access to him. And then he starts talking about how we actually live out our faith, how we actually do this thing of being a Jesus follower. In essence, Paul's just saying, all right, if you're going to be on this Jesus movement, here's what you do next. And that's when Paul transcribes what I think are 21 of the most profound words in the Bible when he says this. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The calling that Paul is referring to, he's actually already articulated early in Ephesians 2, uh, in, in verses 4 through 7, when he wrote this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in, in our transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. That line, that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, that's Paul's way of saying, it is in the life of someone who follows Jesus that God has chosen to reveal his glory. That's the call. Author and pastor Matt Chandler, in his book, To Live as Christ, to Die as Gain, he actually, I think, puts this call in clear terms for us when he writes this. When he commands others to live in a worthy way, he means that we should live in such a way that shows that what we believe is of supreme worth. For Christians, it means living in such a way, and you're going to want to catch this part, that Jesus is seen as big and Jesus is seen as glorious. And so Paul He's imploring the Ephesians to live according to their call, and that call is to make Jesus' name big and to make Jesus' name glorious in their lives. And so when he writes this in verse 1, he's actually kind of mapped out for us a trajectory for our life and how we go about making decisions. He's given us like a big picture look at how we go about making tough decisions. 
But let me help you, help you think of it maybe another way. So I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I, my wife, Paige, and I, we have a favorite restaurant we go to in downtown Chicago. And uh, we go there on special occasions. It's called Fogo de Chao. I don't know if many of you may know it. Um, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing it correctly, so I'm, I'm just going to go with it. So Fogo de Chao, here's, here's what we love about it. When, when you go down there, you, put, you pay a flat rate and you go in, and you get a card at your table. And one side is green, and the other side is red. And when it's green, the waiters and waitresses will just keep bringing you steak and all kinds of cuts and meat over and over and over and over. And when you flip it on red, they stop. And you can flip back and forth as much as you want. So I pretty much make a point that every time I go in there, I just try to keep it on green for as long as humanly possible. And there's a salad bar and stuff. I don't really like, I don't go to that. So that's not relevant. Um, but but it's, it's, a great, it's a great restaurant. We love going there. And so when we're going there, like what I'll do is I'll get in our car and I'll, I'll put my iPhone up on the dashboard. And I'll, I'll use Google Maps. And maybe you do this. Maybe you use Apple Maps if you like getting lost. And so this is, <laughs> this, is what, this is what shows up on my screen when I put in Google Maps. And you see, it gives us the big picture look at where we're going. It doesn't offer the turn by turn, but it basically just says from Parkview to, to Fogo, you know you're heading east, you're going into Chicago, you can see the colored lines indicate the traffic that's, that's rough, and as we all know, we'd love to see more blue, but there's not. And so uh, that, that's kind of the big picture look. And I would compare that screen to what Paul has said in Ephesians 4, 4 1. Because Paul's essentially laid out and said, hey, go east, make Jesus' name big and glorious. That's how you're going to couch every decision in your life. That's how you're going to live, is to make Jesus' name big and glorious. Head east. But if you're like me, you want the next screen. You want the turn-by-turn, turn because on the turn-by-turn, turn, you get the list of instructions. You, get to, you, you know that when you leave Parkview, you're going to turn left on the swift road, because that's going to be your route to the highway. And then, as you're on the highway, you know that you're going to still have some turn-by-turn turn instructions, and you're going to find out your exit. So... When you're, when you're using Google Maps, you'll have that, that exit 50B, and that's how I know that's our exit to, uh, to get to Fogo. And I would compare this screen to those, those, those smaller decisions in our life, right? The ones we talked about earlier. Which major do I choose? What city should I move my family to? Um, all those kinds of questions are kind of that turn-by-turn -turn instructions. And we're saying, God, will you help us to know how to make Jesus' name big and glorious in these, these, these decisions that we have in our lives? And what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul actually does give us some instructions for how to make these decisions and to make Jesus' name big and glorious. But his answer isn't quite what you might expect. And so he offers two specific ways that we lean into our call to make Jesus' name big and glorious. And the first one is in how we live as individuals. So in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul challenges the Ephesians to make sure that the way they live reflects the inward change that has occurred in their lives already. When he writes, uh, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the person who commits their life to Jesus, they are empowered to live a brand new life. They're empowered by the very Spirit of God. It's, all that is just a fancy way of saying when we commit to Jesus, our old self is out, 
the old way of doing things, our selfish way, and the new way of making Jesus' name big and glorious is in. And so Paul offers humility, gentleness, patience, grace, and love as some of the foundational pieces for where we start when it comes to living as a Jesus follower. And Paul's he's not encompassing all the traits of someone who has new life in Christ. He's just mentioning some that he thinks at that point the Ephesians kind of need to hear. And what's interesting, and this is maybe a bit frustrating as well, is then providing us a roadmap for how to live our lives. He, he doesn't tell the Ephesians which jobs they should take. He doesn't tell them which education to get. He doesn't tell them uh, where to move their families to. He starts talking to them about the character traits that should be reflected. And suddenly the subtext of his letter becomes really clear. God is way more concerned with who we are becoming than what we do. Let me say that again. God is way more concerned with who we are becoming than what we do. If I'm being honest, this this portion of the text is it's a little difficult for me to, to work through because I get nervous that someone walking in here who maybe has some preconceived notions that Christianity is all about just doing good things and being as good as you can and you have to earn your way to God and I can't be perfect, so I'm out on that. You may hear all the things Paul's saying and say, ha, I told you. I told you, it's all about just trying to be as good as you can and I'm not about that. And the thing is, you'd be ignoring the first three chapters of, of his letter, if we thought that, because he spends the first, first three chapters, if you remember, saying, hey, I'm not good enough on my own. There is nothing I can do on my own. There's nothing I can do on my own that can earn my relationship with God. It is only through the work of Jesus that I can have a relationship with God. And so when Paul lists these traits, he's essentially just saying, hey, that, that change in your life, comes first from a transformation with God, but this is what should be reflected. Those character traits are an outward, outward symbol, an outward, uh, outward look at what's happened already in our lives. And the cool thing about Paul is that his emphasis is not on how messed up we are, but on what God does to bring us to the best of who we are created to be. And so I mentioned that Paul is had kind of two ways that he wanted, he wanted the Ephesians to uh, live out this call to make Jesus' name big and glorious. And the first one was as individuals, but he doesn't stop there. Because the second part is as a community. See, Paul assumes in his, in his writings that people were meant to do life together. It's not a suggestion. It's not something he hopes would happen. The expectation of someone who is living to make Jesus' name big and glorious is that they're going to be in their community. And he says as much in Ephesians 4 when he talks about, uh, when he talks about this in the works of service. I'm going to read from verse 11 to 13 when he writes, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, at Parkview, we have a lot of opportunities for people to get involved and to use their gifts. Even today, while you're here, a lot of those people have been serving. We have people who hold babies. We have people who are at the door greeting. 
We have life group leaders who are sitting here today. We have mentors to our, to our middle school students who are meeting in the house right next door. And we, we celebrate that. We also celebrate people who are serving out in our community somewhere because we're excited that people are making Jesus' name big and glorious to the people around them. And that's why it always makes me just a little bit sad Whenever there's an opening or volunteer position that's, that needs filled here at Parkview, and it's not because the staff has to work in the fill it. That's not it. It's because there's plenty of people here to, to be involved, and, and that means that someone uh, here, we're not using our gifts for God's kingdom. Because God has uniquely given you something that no one else has. And when we don't serve our community, when we don't get involved we don't make Jesus' name big and glorious to others, suddenly we actually deprive the rest of our world from something that God has only given you. And I'm not just talking about like being an athlete or a musician. I mean, those are kind of the obvious ones. I'm talking about there's all kinds of ways that, that your gifts and your life can be used to serve. You might, be, uh, you might be someone who's just really, really kind, and you have the ability to encourage people in a way that no one else can. You might be really empathetic. You might have the ability to to sit in a moment with someone and feel what they're feeling. And in doing so, you can care for them well and you can help them move from point A to point B. But whatever it is, whatever, whatever it is that you've been given, the expectation from God is that we use our gifts in our community and for our community. Author and theologian N.T. Wright uh, elaborates on Paul's writing and how the Spirit of God changes communities when he writes this. The Christian virtues, supremely faith, hope, and love, the great signs of the resurrection well up within us and are designed to, and catch this line, to produce communities in which each individual has their own unique part to play but within the much larger whole. And the point of it all is not to draw attention to ourselves, but rather to put ourselves out there for everyone else, to spot what needs doing in God's world, and to get on and do it without making a song and a dance about it. To me, that's an amazing quote, and I, and I wish I could just leave the community section there. But Paul doesn't stop at saying, hey, your life should be, your life should be used for, your, for other people. He then talks about how this community should interact with one another, how we should treat each other. And just like he did for us as individuals, he starts to, he starts to share the characteristics of a community that's reflecting this new life. When he writes this, he says, don't lie, but speak truthfully to one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't steal from each other, but share. Don't tear people down, but build them up. Don't be cruel, but be kind and compassionate. And make every effort to keep unity. These are the things Paul writes about how we are to operate together. And as I read this, I, I read it that, that Paul is just urging the Ephesians to stay together and to keep their unity. Because I think he knows that the church and its unity is a fragile thing. And you probably know this. If you've ever been part of a team or you've been ever part of a, a close group of people or a life group or a community, you know that that unity takes time and work to build up and it can be torn down like that. And I think Paul knows this, and he's articulating that. And as I read his thoughts about community, I just think that we are desperate for this type of community in our world. I mean, amidst the conflict and the racism and violence and moral confusion, 
we're ripe to experience this type of living together. And I think God is urging the local church to lead in this area, to model the unity that this world is looking for. To live as we are called is to allow God's, allow God's spirit to work in and through us, and for each of us to create a community that's a leader in the idea of peacemaking. So as we bring Paul's two ideas together, he talks about how to make Jesus' name big and glorious as an individual and in our community, and he doesn't answer a single thing about how we make all these big decisions in our, in our lives. And I think that's because it all comes back to this. It all comes back to the idea that God is more concerned with who you're becoming than what you do. And so how do we know how to make these decisions? How do we know what road to take for some of these big questions? And I think Isaiah 30, 21 actually probably sums it up best when it says that whether you turn right or you turn left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whatever decision you make, make Jesus' name big and glorious in that decision. Wherever you move, whatever school you pick, whatever it is, make Jesus' name big and glorious, whatever you decide. But the question may remain, remain, how do we do that? How do we go about making his name big, making his name glorious? And I want to offer a thought on that because we, we often hear that Jesus should be the number one priority in our lives. and Everything else trickles down. And I understand why that's said, but that also, that also makes it so that we diminish a lot of other pieces of our lives I think God wants us to, to live fully into, whether it's as a, as a spouse or as a friend or as a coworker, Those things aren't to be ignored. So I, I want to offer an, uh, the opportunity to maybe reframe that concept a little bit. What if it's not about prioritizing? What if what we need to do to make Jesus' name big and glorious is is to actually infuse Jesus into every part of our lives, into every facet of our lives. For me, that means Jesus has to be infused in my life as a, as a husband, as a pastor, as a brother, an uncle, a, a friend, a leader. And for you, it may mean if you're a friend, as a friend, make Jesus' name big and glorious. If you're a financial advisor, be fearless, Jesus-following financial advisor. If you're a waiter or waitress, Make Jesus' name big and glorious as a waiter or waitress. If you're a parent, make Jesus' name big and glorious as a parent. And do, you, do you see what I'm saying? We, let's consider infusing Jesus into every part of our lives. And you might hear that and you may think, all right, Josh, well, that's great, but I don't think you know how, how hard that is for me. I don't think you know or understand what that may cost me to do that. And you're right, maybe, maybe I don't. But the author of this book certainly had significant challenges in his life. I mean, Paul started out as a leader in the Jewish religious hierarchy. He famously hated Christians. As a matter of fact, he was on his way to imprison more Christians when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And from that point forward, every step that Paul took toward Jesus resulted in more hardship for him. I mean, Paul was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was lost, and while writing this letter, he was imprisoned. And yet Paul looked at all the suffering he did, and he looked at what he wanted to do to make Jesus' name big and glorious, and he looked at those two things, and he said, fair trade. Fair trade. 
So as we bring this to a close, I want to I invite you to dream with me a little bit. I want to invite you to imagine, what if you lived your life in a way that every part of your life sought to make Jesus' name big and glorious? What if you infused Jesus into your life as a friend, as a co-worker, as someone who's single, dating, or married, as a student, as a business owner? And let's do the same thing of our community. What if our community reflected the new life that we have in Christ? What would that mean for Parkview? What would that mean for our city? What would that mean for our world? Because I want to tell you, when, when this new life in Christ is, is reflected and lived out, it is a beautiful thing. It is so beautiful. And, and my wife and I, we've been recipients of that before. I can remember a few months ago, uh, Paige and I, we got, we got the best news of our marriage thus far. We found out that we were going to be parents. We, we were going to have our first child. And I want to tell you, when I got that news, my mind just went, just worked back and forth seamlessly between, uh, between excitement and between absolute terror. <laughs> but I remember every night going to bed and looking, looking at my wife and, and just smiling because I was going to be a dad. I was going to be a dad. It was a few months, uh, a few months into a our pregnancy, that Paige wasn't feeling right. Something wasn't, there was nothing outwardly that we could tell, but she just, she had a sense that something wasn't right. So she set an appointment a week ahead of time than our, than our next schedule one. And so uh, I wasn't even going to go. There didn't seem like there was anything wrong. And then I remember the day of her appointment it was a half hour before, and I was here at Parkview, and I just had a sick feeling in my stomach that I needed to be there. I didn't know why. I knew nothing of what was going to happen, and I just decided I, I need to be there. And so I worked it out, and I, and I met Paige at the doctor's office, and, and she went through all the normal routine testing, and everything seemed pretty normal, and, and so we then waited in the, in the doctor's room for the nurse to come in and review uh, the tests, and we knew we weren't going to see our doctor because it's such a last-minute appointment, so, so he wasn't available, so we knew we were going to see the nurse. And it was because of that that we knew something was wrong when the doctor walked in with our charts and not the nurse. And the doctor came in, and he he looked at us kindly but directly, and he said, I, I wish I had good news for you, but I don't. And it was in that moment that Paige and I discovered that our firstborn, their heart had stopped. And so we had experienced a miscarriage. And I want to tell you, the, the weeks and months that have followed since then, it, it's been a, bit of a, been a bit of a blur, to be honest. But here is one thing that I will never forget that I remember vividly. It's how our community wrapped around us in our grief. We had our life group who prayed for us. We had friends who took us out to lunch and just let us cry in the middle of a restaurant. I remember friends who just brought us over meals so we wouldn't have to think about it. We even had one friend who came and just mowed our lawn because it was one less thing we had to think about so we could just be present in our, in our pain. And I suddenly found myself as a recipient of the pastoral care that I had watched my colleagues give to so many people, many of you in this audience. And listen, 
their care for us, it didn't make the pain go away. It didn't make it, uh, didn't make it okay. It wasn't that our grief suddenly disappeared. But here's what happened. If you've ever had a tragedy in your life, if you've ever had loss, if you've ever experienced pain, you know that it may be hard for you to see, see what God's doing in it. But the beauty of what our community did is when we couldn't see Jesus amidst our pain, we were able to look around us, and we found Jesus in our friends and our family. And we were able to see that Jesus was alive and well, and he was meeting us right where we were at. And I want to tell you, that kind of thing doesn't just happen magically. That happens because individuals make a decision, I'm going to make Jesus' name big and glorious in my life. And the community comes together and says, we're going to reflect this together. That's what our friends did. That's what our life group did. That's what our church did. And when that happens, it is a game changer. It changes lives because we serve a God who changes lives. Paul says that in Jesus, we have new life. We're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And the challenge he gives to the Ephesians, I also want to give you today, to live according to your call. Because it's only in making Jesus' name big and glorious in every facet of our lives can we truly live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Let me pray. God, thank you for your son. Paul spends so much of his letter being so thankful that we get new life in the work of Jesus. That we get to have a relationship with the living God. And Paul challenges, Paul challenges us to, to live according to our call and to make Jesus' name big and glorious. And today, God, we dreamed a little bit. We dreamed of what that might look like. If individually we went out and we made his name big and glorious, but also we dreamed of what we might look like together, how we might make an impact in our world if we reflected the beauty of our Lord. And so today, God, I just, I ask as many of us kind of do some soul searching and figure out, well, what does it look like to make your name big and glorious in every facet of our lives? That you would just help us navigate it. Because it'll require us to have some tough conversations and to look at everything and saying, how are we worshiping you? But I pray that you would meet our people here today. pray all these things in Jesus' name. thank you for being here this morning. And we do serve a great God. And the call to make Jesus' name big and glorious, we say that because he is big and glorious and we just want people to know about it. And so my challenge to you today is, if God's put that call in your life, my challenge is to consider what areas of your life is it time to start infusing Jesus into? Where can you make Jesus' name big glorious. But you may be here this morning and you may 
be saying, whoa, hold the phone. Did you way back say that we could have a relationship with the living God? And that's you, and you want to talk about that. We have our prayer counselors who are going to be down here. I'll be down here. And we'd love to have that conversation with you and just begin that conversation. Because, man, do we have some good news for you. That it's not about doing enough good things, but it's by God's grace that, that we can know him. So we'd love, to, we'd love to talk to you more about that. I also want to invite everyone to, to join us next week as we continue in our, uh, in our blueprint series and, and study through Ephesians. So let me pray for you, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. God, we've been challenged today as we read the, the words of Apostle Paul to lean into our call to make Jesus' name big and glorious. And I pray that as, as we leave here, you would really help us navigate that because it's hard sometimes. It's hard to figure out what that means in our jobs or in our homes or in our neighborhoods. And I just pray, God, that you would help us, help us to figure out what that, what that looks like and that you would meet us in that place. Thank you that we can worship you freely here. And thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great afternoon.